Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The sun is several thousand miles away. Actually, it's much more. It's like 92 million. The so-called stars around it are an illusion. Light reflected off rocks in the pants of giants. What? Behold, the mighty Crab Nebula. Dinosaurs flew there 6,500 years ago, making the difficult journey from Earth because God detested our wickedness. You promised this was a science show. Humankind has only one set of options. Forswear onanism, buy a 2014 Jeep Cherokee, and admit that comets are little tiny pieces of Jesus. Otherwise, God will shut off gravity and your feet will be sucked up through your body and come out of the top of your head, just like in Australia. All right, I don't even know where to start with that. You can start with the waffle taco, which was invented by Isaac Newton, a tiny cartoon lion who lived in 19th century Sweden. Today, he is the constellation Simba. You should be ashamed of yourself. Our society is facing a crisis of scientific illiteracy, and you're using the show to spread distortions with no basis in reality. I am out. Of course, Newton also faced doubters, human minds enslaved by a race of evil grizzly bears who live behind the moon. You know, I heard that lunar death bears were totally disproved. We'll tell you more today on The Speed of Wolf. But first, get ready for a discussion of Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos, the resignation of John Rowland, and the retirement of David Letterman. And now, he just boarded Neil's imaginary spaceship and said, look at me, I am the imaginary captain now, Colin McEnroe. Yes, we are going to talk about Cosmos, uh, and we're a little bit later going to talk about the resignation of John Rowland and the retirement of David Letterman. To the best of our knowledge, these three things are not related to one another. Maybe they are, though. Probably at some distant corner of the galaxy they are. Uh, and from a distant corner of the galaxy, it's uh, musician, producer, uh, guitar hero Jim Chapdelaine with us. Teresa Kramer, she runs, among other things, The Cut, uh, an online magazine celebrating the ridiculousness uh, of Connecticut. Uh, and uh, Rand Cooper, a uh, freelance writer, novelist, gourmand, uh, and, uh, and restaurant reviewer for the New York Times. So that's who's with us right now. And one of the things, what we'll do in the first segment is talk uh, about this revival of Cosmos. Uh, it was uh, the great Carl Sagan uh, series uh, many, many years ago during, in the midst of the Cold War. Now it's back, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can see it on Fox. You can see it on uh, National Geographic. You can see it on demand. Uh, you can see it online. Uh, you can see it a lot of different places. So uh, we watched a bunch of episodes this week uh, to get ready for that. In the second segment, we will talk about the fact that John Rowland, uh, as of last evening around 6 p.m., uh, announced uh, his departure from WTICAM. Uh, and also yesterday, uh, another broadcast uh, retirement, and that was David Letterman. Uh, in a kind of, I thought, a fairly <laughs> remarkable little soliloquy about why uh, come 2015 he will no longer be hosting his show. So, but let's begin with Cosmos. And I'm going to go over to Teresa Kramer first because, you know, we do discuss these things online, and they're often these flurries of email. As a matter of fact, Jim Chaplin kind of runs a meter trying to figure out, you know, how many emails have been sent, <laughs> how much pre-discussion has gone on, and to what degree do the, does that influence, either positively or negatively, the quality of the show we will actually do. We had a lot of discussion this 
week. But and Teresa was really, you were kind of prodding us along here. And I, I, th- I guess I, we need to talk about Cosmos two different ways, right? Mm-hmm. We need to talk about it, or maybe three if you count the cocktail. But um, we need to talk about it as just how it works as television. And then we also need to talk about the fact that it has an agenda. Mm-hmm. It has an openly stated agenda. And there has been resistance in the world of religious people to that agenda. But let's just talk about how it works as television for beginners. And by the way, before Teresa gets going, if you want to call in, 860-275-7266. Call early. Don't call when we're just getting ready to move on to something else. 860-275-7266. For you, it kind of works okay as television, right? Yeah, I like it. I mean, I think it straddles, sort of tries to straddle audiences so that, you know, young children, not young children, not two-year-olds, but, you know, seven-year-olds or something will enjoy it um, and the cartoons. And at the same time, you know, convince their parents that when the creationists come through and try to teach it in science class that they should fight back because it is not not true. Um and it does that well, combining some really awesome imagery. It reminds me, I saw the Hubble movie a few years ago when it was in IMAX theaters, mm. and I just, you couldn't even take it all in because those, those screens are so huge, and it reminds, some of the imagery, imagery really reminds me a lot of that. While, you know, there's these simple cartoons to explain to you who Newton was. Mm. Well, yeah, and I think you also in your mm-hmm. – uh, not, not to quote you back to yourself, mm-hmm. but you sort of said, you know, kind of 9 o'clock, I think that's when it's on. It's sort mm-hmm. of a bridge moment, right? There's uh, there's some kids watching mm-hmm. and some of this does seem to be aimed at kids. There are – I think you said there were stupid adults watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are stupid adults and then there are adults who have a basic concept of science and just occasionally get their minds blown by black holes or something. Yeah, so this could speak to all three mm-hmm. ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so – um, well, I'll just go down the line here. I mean, all of us had different responses to this. Rand and I, I think, are the, are the two crankiest about it. But uh, so, so Jim, um, be a voice of reason. I love, I love this show. I just love. <laughs> oh, no, I no, I think it's great that there's a science show in prime time. That's first of all. I, I think it's great that it's hosted by an African American guy who's brilliant. And I think the graphics are sort of horrifying. <laughs> but then I thought about the, you, those you cartoons. Mean, you mean the animation. The animation yeah. and, and some of the graphics. I don't really need to get in that spaceship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I could just be magically transported. Uh, Which is but the spaceship that he rides around in, people keep saying, it looks like a cell phone. I, I feel like I'm at the World's Fair yeah. and one of those rides. And you should be singing, it's a small world. Uh, but I will say, I think there's something a little bit more sneaky about those animations than we recall. If you ever have occasion to watch sort of animations of the Bible, they are very, very similar animations. And it may be a way of saying, look, all you people who have seen this, we are speaking to you. And we have scientific, irrefutable proof that the world is older than 6,500 years. And, and and here's a little cartoon to illustrate that. That's interesting because one of the things I was thinking about, or one of the art, the article from the scientists that we read mm-hmm. mentioned she doesn't understand why they focused on the Bruno character in one of those mm-hmm. first couple of episodes. Mm. But Bruno is all about saying, you know, I can imagine an infinite universe that we are not the center of because the God I believe in is infinite, and why wouldn't he create an in- infinite universe? And so it's sort of bringing in this idea of they're they're not totally incompatible, like as the young Earth creationists would, because there are creationists who believe in, you know, 
what do they call it? Uh, intelligent design or yeah. whatever. But then there are the young Earth people who are like, we've only been here for 6,500 years. And so I think you hit on something with the sort of re- religious aspect of some of these um, some of these. Animations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're all going to burn for this, by the way. Yeah. Just like Bruno. <laughs> um, we'll come to that. We'll come mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. So, Rand, you were less fond of this. Well, I, I think I was confused by it. Um, I have an eight-year-old daughter, and, and so the challenge of finding family viewing that is something that, that we can watch and that she can watch is always before us. And generally, it's solved by one or the other party attaching itself to to the other to the other's fair. So, for instance, my daughter lo- has loved for years a show, PBS show called Wildcrats, mm-hmm. where these two brothers take you on a tour uh, through uh, through nature, and it usually focuses on a particular animal or fish of interest. And like Cosmos, it combines actual footage of the brothers with real life animals, and then it morphs into a cartoon, and they have the ability to assume the brothers do whatever the particular talents or physical abilities or aptitudes of that animal is. Now, this is clearly made for six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. Uh, I don't know. What time is that on? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but as a visitor into that world, I actually love the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, Molly, my wife, and I, we can get our daughter to watch various grown-up shows, and, and she gets what she can out of it. But this show seems somewhere in between, and I find that unsettling. And, and there, in some ways... Uh, so, some of the science that it explains are things that are so elementary, like what is a light year? Mm-hmm. And that they'll spend a fair amount of time on what a light year is. Then you're into Einsteinian stuff that seems way too hard for any young person to imagine, but yet the rhetoric, the, the idiom of the narrative, the, the tone, the way it's couched and even vocalized seems to be for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I, I find it confusing in that way. I'm not sure who the audience is, and, and I don't know if it's getting both or actually going to alienate both. Then the other way, just quickly, I think it's confusing, is some of the the visuals are very opulent, and they're of a piece with what we now expect the standard sort of space uh, techno play to be when you watch a movie like Gravity or or any any other movie like that. It's, oh, it's impressive in that way. And then suddenly here come these not only cartoonish but really primitive cartoons like the level of Clutch Cargo or Hercules or the, the cartoons of my distant childhood. That all clashes to me. I honestly found it as a viewing experience hard to hang in there, mm-hmm. even though there's much to be learned. It's a great public service. Like you, Jim, I'm totally glad it's being done. Scientific illiteracy is widespread, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm very much with Rand about this. We have some calls coming in. We'll try to get to those as well. Uh, I, I, I concede to everyone that, I mean, watching any of these, I, I learn things that I either did not know or have forgotten or incompletely grasped. And so anytime you watch, you spend an hour watching something and you actually come away with a better understanding of something that's important and these things are important, that's good. Um, that said, I, I'm – and I'm also a big Neil deGrasse Tyson fan. And one of the things that actually has sort of bothered me about this show is if you've ever seen Neil deGrasse Tyson talk off the cuff, he's really wonderful at it. You know, I mean he really just has that ability just uh, in an unscripted way to talk – in a very entertaining manner and a very lucid manner about complicated things. And if you see ever have ever seen him relax, as we did in the hands of the masterful John Dankosky when he was at the Connecticut Forum, 
He's wonderful. He's just great. And so to see him in this environment where everything is scripted and delivered in this kind of tone of breathlessness for the most part, you know, now we pass mighty Jupiter. And I'm thinking Neil deGrasse Tyson would never say, now we pass mighty Jupiter. And and also in which everything, absolutely everything, is acted out. So at the beginning of one of the um, one of the episodes, he begins with this interesting metaphor. He says that mankind was just left here in the universe like an abandoned baby with no note, no instructions, you know, and just just to figure out the universe. We are Moses. Yeah, but but, but not content to do that. They then show us this baby. They, they actually have a real live baby who's just lying there with a beard in a basket. <laughs> a huge and beard. Because we couldn't possibly imagine an abandoned baby. I mean, if this were just a spoken word. But then. Neil deGrasse Tyson shows up and picks up the baby and holds it in his arms. And I'm thinking, who in this metaphor, if the baby is all of humankind, who is Neil deGrasse Tyson? <laughs> He's got the whole world <laughs> in his – you know, I'm, who is he? Uh, you know, yeah. but the tone that he's using – and I agree with, with everything you said. Mm. Uh, uh, but I'm going to take a cue from Rand who's looking to smack one of us down today, I think, <laughs> and, uh, and, and say the tone of this – is, I think, a tribute to Carl Sagan, mm-hmm. who really did see the world full of wonder and mm-hmm. billions. I mean, remember when billions oh, yeah. and billions was pretty much everybody said it. And and I also think the idea that it's being produced by Seth MacFarlane, in, uh, he, who revered Carl Sagan, is dictating some of the, the tone and dialogue. And that this is sort of a setup for bigger and better things. I mean, I'm not saying it's Game of Thrones or anything, but but this is Occasionally, a it looks a little like Game of Thrones. I mean, it's during the evolution sequence when suddenly Neil is like – Neil is everywhere. And so he's yeah. like around a campfire. There's nobody else at the campfire. The wolves. And the wolves are coming in. And he picks up a flaming log <laughs> and, ch- and chases this wolf away. And it was and a thinking, dire wolf. This is really <laughs> unnecessary. I, I just don't need to see one of America's no, great popular we astronomers. we in Connecticut do need to see this because we're being plagued by wolf we, dogs. We have wolf dogs yeah. in Stonington, yeah. I was down – I'll tell you off the air. I had a good story from Stonington last week. But, you know, Teresa, you were the one who really kind of – I didn't quite grasp – um, until you sent me this clip uh, of Seth MacFarlane, who's the creator of Family Guy and movies like Ted and Ted or Teddy, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really grasp his involvement, but we had uh, Teresa sent us a clip of MacFarlane on Bill Maher. Bill Maher, who is proof, if anywhere needed, that a scientifically minded, non religious person can be every bit as repellent <laughs> as the worst creationist you can imagine. Um, and, and so, you know, although this series takes little gentle swats, I would say, at people who don't, don't believe in evolution, people who think the universe is only 6,500 years old, listening to McFarlane and Maher talk so disdainfully <laughs> of religious people, I thought, wow, this show really does have, it does have an agenda. I mean, it, it's not even being very coy about it, right? Yeah, and I, I think the timing is interesting because we are at a time where there are states that are teaching creationism in their biology classes and whatnot. And so I don't think it's – and, I mean, when was the last time a show like this was done? I don't remember one. 1980. Right. Yeah. You know, we're say. You know n- no uh, creationist is, is going to agree with or like what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. But um, but there is – first of all, A, I, I agree that the swipes of creationism are very gentle in, in that, in that uh, section where he – 
discusses the phenomenon of light and how it's impossible that it's only 6,500 years old. He never mentions creationism. He just says some may believe that the universe is this That's old. That's where he here's, gets one. Here's, here's why like it's not true. Win. But there, there is a kind of substitute religious majesty that the show is, is dealing in. And part of the sense of the overblown marvelousness that's part of the rhetoric of the, of the narrative and the constant profundity um, is, is a way of reaching after a, a sublime. My, my good friend Michael Robinson, who's a, who's a, history, uh, a historian of discovery at, uh, at the University of Hartford, notes that an inspiration for the original cosmos was the, is the five-volume work of a 19th century German scientist named Alexander von Humboldt, who, whose life work was called Cosmos. And Michael puts Humboldt in the context of 19th century romanticism. Now, he was a great scientist, but, but the, the notion of romanticism, that there is some, some underlying soul to the universe, some sense of the sublime that makes itself evident in every filament of creation... Is is a, includes a sense of majesty that I think this show is reaching for, and it's and it's animated by, and it can be, it can be a turnoff because it it overreaches, you know, for that sense. The, all, all the stuff about black holes and how you're traveling through it toward this great mystery. I kept thinking, well, this this is a this is a sort of religious. There's there's a religious tincture you know, to maybe, what's going but on here. I think here. It, you have to hold off till they get to the Asian carp section, <laughs> and that's going to be too, that's going to blow the religious part of it out. He gets to see a lot of the advanced copies. All right, let me let me just grab a quick call here from uh, Tom in Watertown. Hi, Tom. Mm, Tom might have hung up. Uh, it says, uh, well, I can see his comment there. If Tom has hung up, we look forward to watching it every week with the whole family. It does have relevance. Uh, also getting a tweet, uh, pretty much the same thing. People are it's sort of destination television. And they, sometimes I think with, with the two commenters I can see here for the reasons that Rand was saying, if you have six, eight, nine-year-olds in the house, you really are looking for something that you, you can all have a conversation about anyway. And, and it does do that. But, you know, just to back to Rand's point, too, I think it goes back to what you were saying about the depiction of Bruno in one of the episodes, which is it's not, there are so many different ways that religion and science can engage. They can engage at the level of conflict. They can engage at the level of independence. Or they can engage at the level of interde- interdependence. That They don't have to be quite as inimical uh, to one another as is sometimes suggested. And sometimes the series kind of goes there. And sometimes the series goes in the other direction. Like if you, yeah, that is a yeah. little confusing because, you know, they they make the case for Bruno and, you know, he, he is burned alive on our TV screen. It's it's disturbing, um, even if he is a cartoon. But um, but then they go and they spend, you know, 10 minutes telling you how the eye evolved because that tends to be a big creationist point that, you know, it must have been created by something because it's just too intricate and I have the I have the opposite impression where I'm like, if I was creating something, I'd be just like, that's an eye. It works. I don't care how it works. There wouldn't be all these very intricate things happening inside of it. But <laughs> you should if be God. I was God, yeah. yeah. Teresa should be God. There's an eye. It works. That's how that's how my Bible goes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether she, you should be God or a cult leader. You yeah. might, maybe a cult leader would be I would better. make a good cult leader. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I th- do think just to... You know, we keep alluding to the Carl Sagan cosmos from 1980. And that, that one had an agenda, too. And, and even now, his, his widow talks about it. That was the height of the Cold War. And really much, very much um, uh, a subtext to that cosmos was we are very, very small. And when you look at the vastness of the universe, we're really, really small. Does it make sense for the people on this one little side of this speck 
this tiny little speck to be having like big issues with people on another little side of this of this speck when you realize how big everything else is. I mean, I don't think it really ended the Cold War or anything like that, but that was sort of the argument. And, and I do think there's another war going on now that this thing is trying to play a role in. As you say, there's a lot of this stuff going on in the States. You need only look at the reaction to the movie Noah, which I did not have the unkindness in my heart to make you all go see, <laughs> although I did see it. Um, but, I mean, it, w- once again, so nobody's happy. You know, I mean, the fundamentalists feel as though that Darren Aronofsky has not treated biblical text reverently or seriously, uh, and people who are whatever the opposite of fundamentalists are say, why did I have to spend two hours and 18 minutes of my life watching this kind of absurd fairy tale staged in this very absurd way? You know, you know, we're living in an interesting moment for atheists and atheism and, and agnosticism. It's asserting itself in the public discourse in this country in ways that it really never has before. Um, and and the number of of, of, of intelligent um, and and uh, uh, ambitious and aggressive atheist writers who've, who've who've published books in the past five years, you know, it's it's interesting. This show, while it will dispel this or that particular um, anti-science notion that. Um, that religion might put forth. I don't see it, I don't think it has an agenda that's of a piece with the the sort of emerging atheist uh, movement in in this country. Rather, this, this, uh, while it while it lets us, while it reminds us of the majesty of human understanding over the years, whether it's Newton or or, or, or others who have um, prevailed over what were religious dogmas of the time, it, it also constantly reminds us that there are things that we don't yet come close to understanding. And I think in that episode when, when we follow Neil deGrasse Tyson in, in, the trem, in, in the shaking spaceship of imagination, which to me looks like a huge lady chick razor or something, um, as we approach that black hole, um, and he says, there comes this moment where he says, you know what, anything I'm going to say now, from now on, is total speculation. We really don't understand it. We don't know. And then there follow these convolutions and involutions of travel and different dimensions and possible universes within universes and stuff that look like giant masses of ping pong balls that may be universes. We're then reminded, oh, there is this still vast area that's way beyond our knowing. And, and you know, to me, that has some sort of, I don't know, religious significance. Or at least it's not an anti-religious sentiment. Uh, Trudy tweets to us, listening to some curmudgeonly discussion of Cosmos <laughs> on the Colin McEnroe show. Come on. Neil deGrasse Tyson with a fiery stick was fun. <laughs> Live a little. Um, that might my be dog the... liked it. I made her watch that episode. <laughs> my, <laughs> my dog reacted to that, too. Really? She loves dogs on screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My dogs are so stupid. And they don't, they don't, they don't I don't know who this person is <laughs> calling us <laughs> curmudgeons, but I, I don't the, like it. Enough. I got the dumbest dogs. <laughs> All right. That may be a good place to stop. Um, you, you should watch it. Uh, let me just say one last thing, though. One final observation. Um, which is that one difference between this show and my recollection, anyway, of Carl Sagan's Cosmos, this show has commercials. Um, and they are commercials for waffle tacos and, and uh, a lot of pro- – if you're watching it on Fox, uh, you see a lot of promos for the revamping of 24 with Jack Bauer. Uh, you see uh, Jeep Cherokee commercials. So they really can't afford to completely get in anybody's faces, right? I mean they have to be somewhat conciliatory to – you know, purely scientifically minded you know, the, people. The other thing, and, and I haven't seen anybody mention this, but Carl Sagan was high. He was stoned all the time. And he, he'll tell you that. And uh, Well, he won't tell you that now. But, yeah. but that was a regular part of his day. And I'm not saying that's a good thing to do or not to do. Mm. But, but a lot of his sort of big ideas, he claimed 
came in the shower while floating through the ether of yeah. imagination. Oh, yeah. Neil cannot be taking drugs because then the wolves get you. Uh, you got to be on your right. toes every second, or you'd right. fall into the black hole. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, two resignation slash retirements. One here in Connecticut with John Rowland. The other, well, a Connecticut resident, David Letterman. We'll be back with both of those. Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, well, for most of this week, we have been following uh, the drama of former Governor John G. Rowland, uh, who is implicated uh, in a case uh, involving the concealment of campaign contributions. Uh, the two other principals in that conspiracy uh, pled guilty earlier uh, this week in federal court. So then all eyes and especially ears went to WTIC, where John Rowland uh, has been anchoring a show that runs from three to six, cards on the table. I anchored that same show in that same time slot for slightly more than 10 years. Um, you taught him everything he knows. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I was uh, let go by the station in 2008. Two years later, uh, they hired him uh, into that spot. So um, a lot of questions had to do with, well, w- with what appears to be some kind of imminent plea deal or, or working out of these criminal charges uh, against him. Uh, or the expectation, anyway, that criminal, char- criminal charges against him will be announced in some way. Um, could he possibly stay on the air? He did get on the air on Tuesday when everybody was sort of wondering. Uh, he was back on the air uh, Wednesday and yesterday. And then at the end of yesterday's show, we heard this. All right, tomorrow the Red Sox will be on at this hour, and uh, you'll be enjoying them. Uh, but I also want to say that uh, today will be my last show as I'm leaving the station to uh, take care of some personal issues. And I want to thank you all. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you for your tremendous support. Uh, I want to thank you for your loyalty. Uh, it's been a great experience, and uh, um, we'll uh, we'll take it from there. And God bless you all. So uh, his uh, show lasted uh, all of about three and a half years uh, on WTIC. Um, once again, we welcome phone calls from you about this, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Uh, last night on Facebook, uh, I, I posted, and it's actually now turned into the lead for my column this Sunday in The Current, um, that, you know, John Rowland, just to continue with the Neil deGrasse Tyson vein, John Rowland on WTIC was kind of like a colony of monkeys trying to live on the surface of the sun. It never should have been tried in the first place, and now that it's over, there's not that much you can say about it. But there may be things that we can say about it, and we're going to go first to the the person among us who I'm very confident in saying has listened to the most John Rowland on WTIC, uh, Rand Cooper, uh, for reasons having to do with how you live your life, I guess, and maybe even curiosity. You were a, con- a semi-regular Rowland listener. Well, every day at that time, I'm, I'm sitting in my car outside my daughter's school waiting for her to come out. And you have to go a little early if you want to get a parking spot anywhere near the school. Uh, and I've had reasons to want to be near the school. Uh, and so I, I go early. And so I've spent a fair amount of time listening to the first 20 minutes or half an hour of his show. And just the one thing, I, I found him 
um, elusive uh, and sort of baffling as a as a radio show host, particularly of of a conservative as a conservative talk show radio host. He didn't seem to meet what are the standard requirements of the persona uh, or the form. Politically very moderate. He had positions that, like uh, he's not anti-gun control. Really, he's not anti-gay marriage. So the positions that would seem to disqualify him. Um, certainly, in the lineup that WTIC has with Weisovich in the morning, then Rush, and then and then uh, and then Roland, and and also the second thing is there's no anger. There was no anger in him anywhere. Normally, you know, one requirement of that genre is that you be able to attack. You be an Obama, an Obama hater. You get your troops riled up and ready for battle. And it was none of that. His persona was was conspicuously and continuously mild, a sort of a milk toast kind of guy, reasonable. Uh, didn't necessarily seem to have done his homework. Um, uh, a pleasant, polite. I didn't really get him as a as a radio show host. Now this may bleed into the larger question of what did voters like about him in the first place? What was his political persona? But I do remember calling at one point. You said, you know, behind the scenes as a politician, oh, he, he people people were afraid of him. When you listen to him on air, it was impossible <clears throat> to imagine that the guy you're listening to would have been a, a forceful, commanding politician. Who intimidated anyone? Hmm. Other reactions here? I'm, I'm, I, I I'm think making, uh, one thing that occurred to me is, in light of the Supreme Court decision to sort of uh, throw the money grenade and pull the pin on it, um, guys like Roland, who what made what seventy eight thousand? I think somebody said a year um, as governor. The, yeah, as, as governor, governor, the last and, year they doubled yeah, that. But. Yeah, really want to be a player, and so now guys like him. I think we're going to see more guys like him that are up for sale. And and he seemed like he was, dis, despite his uh, milquetoast appearance, he seemed very much up for sale and, and desperately wanting to elevate himself uh, to a position that was unattainable to him uh, and ending up in a striped suit. <laughs> well, apart from your experience of waiting on him at the Parma yeah. as a young lady, uh, I, mean, I don't know. Have you sort of followed this drama in any particular way? And it's no. the thing that you emailed us the least about, so I'm not sure what question to ask you. Yeah, I mean, the my basic reaction to this whole thing was like, oh, John Rowland has a radio show. Like, like, <laughs> I, I just, he was so not even part of my consciousness anymore. Um, yeah, that you, it, it let was, go. yeah, I, I've let go of all my John Rowland hating. Well, you know, I, there's one thing that I, I do want to just say a little bit about. Obviously, I, weigh, I know way too much about John Rowland and our lives since 1994, have intersected way too many times, although rarely at the level of direct personal contact. That's only really kind of happened two or three times. Um, but, you know, I'll just tell a quick story that I don't think I've ever told publicly, which is, I mean, I was obviously, I spent a lot of my time on the air when he was governor, when he was in the process of being impeached, uh, you know, speaking very, very critically about him. And this did start way back in 1994 when I teasingly started referring to him as the Prince of Darkness, something he really, really hated, um, uh, understandably. Um, and, and it went on and on. And then I left the station, uh, or they kicked me out, and two years later they, they hired John Rowland, a guy who, as I say, I really sort of had stood in opposition to him a lot. And aware of that, the person who hired John Rowland at the station called me the day that it was announced. I got two phone calls that day. The first one was from my old partner, Bruce Stevens, who knew – I didn't know about this. I was involved in some Ann Cumberly art project that morning or something. So Bruce called me up to sort of laugh about this whole thing, and I didn't even know what the story was. Um, and then the person, uh, Steve Salhane, the guy who, who hired Roland, called me later in the day, and he said, do you hate me? You know, he goes, I mean, we did this, but I, I do – I want to know, you know, are you going to hate me for this? 
<laughs> he'd already fired me. <laughs> why, are we, why are we talking about this? But anyway, I said no. And I said, you know, I listened to his tryout and stuff like that. He actually, in, in some of the ways that Rand talks about, I thought he was pretty good. He was kind of engaging in some ways. You know, he wasn't off-putting. He wasn't angry. And when he talked about stuff other than politics, I was, he was kind of fun to listen to. I mean, talking about just what he watches on television and stuff. He has a very nice way about him on the radio. But the thing that I, I just came to believe was that he couldn't really be successful, truly successful, without completely embracing who he had been. You know, that you can't do that show. If you've been to prison, if you've had to go running out of the governor's mansion, essentially, with, you know, impeachment committee snapping at your heels, you, you kind of have to embrace that as part of your identity on the air. You have to, and you have to be able to sort of make dark jokes about it, just the way that Don Imus makes dark jokes all the time about his addiction problems in the past. And you know, he embraces all the things that are horrible about him, and, and they're the subjects of great merriment on his show. And, and I, I was expecting Roland at least to have a little bit of that, kind of like – I know public malfeasance when I see it because I did so much of it. Or, you know, or just little jokes if he's talking about somebody like, you know, I can tell him which cell in Loretto he's going to wind well, up in. Apparently he doesn't know public <laughs> malfeasance when he's – I mean yeah, it's it, this, this erasure hmm. of, uh, of what he did goes hand in hand apparently with the ability to do it again. I mean what, certainly one thing people are asking when they look at the details of what's going on currently is again? Hmm. Why doesn't he get it? Um, is it is it stupidity or cupidity? Um, and and I mean the, the the facts of this case seem to be pretty straightforward. Okay, we'll have to see how how it plays out. But um, but he, you know, it seems like he should be able to understand that to be hired secretly by a candidate to have your payment funneled through a function that is not actually yours and an entity that you does not actually employ you in order for you to use your radio station as a bully pulpit, pulpit for the politician who's paying you secretly, that that's not kosher. And, and there is going to be bewilderment uh, in the general populace that don't, don't you learn that when you, when you go away for 10 months? <laughs> you just come out and do it again? Why? You it's, seem reasonable. It's like our own very, he's our very own Anthony Weiner. Like he just keeps making the same mistake over it, and over Except again. he doesn't – he never had the personality. I think what you're talking about, he was pleasant. Mm. And it, it reminds me of sort of uh, uh, being in a doctor's waiting room and reading People magazine or something, press releases. There's, there was really no actual content when I listened. And I only listened a few times, so I, I don't want to say I'm an expert – but it seemed like the most bland, uh, soporific thing that you could put on the – maybe it was nap time or something. And it, this it was, was a soothing voice right. for children taking naps. It was I, so inoffensive and it did occur to me to think, well, the guy was actually a, 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 a convicted offender. So to be never, – never to offend right, on right. his show, there may be a sort of ironic uh, stylistic penance. Um, and I, I, was, I was struck by that. I mean I'm never having heard him really talk before. But again, you remember that skit that was done on, on Saturday Night Live with, with the public and the private Ronald Reagan? Yes. Uh, where, 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 where right, Ronald Reagan would, would, would come out and give a, a well, yeah. a nice talk to a gathered uh, group, sort of vague and, and, and friendly, and he'd pat a kid on the head and then uh, go back into the room for a meeting and it'd be, all right, now we're going to take Central Europe. We're going to kick. And, you know, that, 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 he'd be on the phone speaking Farsi to some degree. <laughs> right. right. like so that, this yeah. sense yeah. that there is always a big discrepancy between the public persona, which is a brand and a production, and the private, scheming, calculating, powerful politician. That sense is, is with us all, and I would need to have sort of that half of the Roland picture filled in for me to know this discrepancy. I mean, Colin, you, you know you know a lot more about that R than Rand, you, you just confirmed a theory I have that anyone imitating Reagan 
is obliged to start with the word well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's mandatory, right? Yeah. Well, you do. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, grab a call here or two here, and then we're gonna, we need to leave time for Letterman, so we can't belabor this too much. Here's John in Burlington. Hi, John. How you doing? Fine. Oh, I want to make a comment on Roland and his radio show. Uh, I don't want, I'm not trying not to turn this into a hateful rant, although I find the individual to be a repugnant worm. Uh, <laughs> as far as his radio show, I used to tune in once in a while, and I used to call in once in a while. And the reason I would is I used to try to talk sense to some of these people that would listen to his show because his constant points were always. Uh, uh, people with these huge pensions, pensions, uh, nepotism, uh, people that made all their money in government. And he was all those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to wonder at the hypocrisy of his $50,000 pension. His father was in government, his economic czar deal in Waterbury. And he always tried to come across like he was this private industry uh private uh, money kind of guy when his whole life uh, since he was young he he he's made money being a politician mm-hmm. and, and these people and you could call and make a comment and you know he would hang up on you and then go off on you and then claim you hung up because you were scared to talk to him but besides that then these people would call up and just defend him and totally not see the point now if you have a, a right-wing viewpoint or whatever that's fine but these people refused to see that he was exactly what he was speaking against and what they supposedly detest so much is what used to drive me nuts. All right. Well, I hope you feel better now, uh, and uh, we won't hang up. I actually I did just put you on hold, but uh, but we won't denounce you now that we uh, put you on hold. Although I like the repugnant worm. It's a new species. Disclaimer. Yeah, that's a, the least popular Eric Carl book, actually, <laughs> The Repugnant Worm. Um, all right. Uh, we should hear at least from one Roland Defender. I think we do have one on the line. Here's Jim in Hartford. Hi, Jim. Hey, hi, Colin. How you doing? Good. Hey, listen, you know, John Rowland, uh, I really got irritated every time I heard the word gov. But uh, in fairness, you know, under our system of justice, which is, you know, quite uh, inept, the guy hasn't even been indicted yet. And, Absolutely uh, right. You know what I mean? And so, you know, in fairness, I think everyone should take a deep breath and say, hey, you know what? The Foley's went and ratted him out. It was obvious from day one to anybody that, you know, had a brain that this this was not kosher. But uh, the fact is, uh, you know, look around the state legislature and uh, let's see how many other people are pulling, you know, similar type of, uh, you know, election fraud uh, or campaign finance fraud. This has been going on in this state, you know, from you know, from day one, uh, back to the O'Neill administration. Right? Do you think he will be indicted? Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or oh, he, yeah. yeah, he will. He or he will plead yeah. guilty without. So we can exhale. Yeah. Um, we're, we're just going to jump over from there. Fascinating though this is uh, to the other resignation. Um, and, and what I found anyway, I guess not everybody saw it this way, but I found a kind of a remarkable soliloquy uh, yesterday. Uh, David Letterman announced that uh, he would not be continuing. Uh, on his show, much past, I guess, early 2015, the timetable, he said, is not quite worked out. Let's just hear a a little clip of that. Uh, Earlier today, the man who owns this network, Leslie Moonves, he and I have had a relationship for years and years and years. And we've had this conversation in the past, and we agreed that we would work together uh, on this circumstance and the timing of this circumstance. And I phoned him just before the program, and I said, Leslie, it's been great. You've been great. The network has been great. But I'm retiring. This is really. Yep. This is true. This is. Uh, you actually did this. Yes, I did. Wow. Well, 
Do I have a Do I have a minute to call my accountant? Because <laughs> I. Uh... <laughs> so, so it. Uh, I just want to uh, reiterate my thanks and uh, for the support from the network, all of the people who have worked here, all of the people uh, in the theater, all the people on the staff, everybody at home. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, what this means now is that uh, Paul and I can be married. So that this was preceded by this long conversation about a bird that he and his son uh, had seen and, and their attempts to identify it. And, and at one point he looked at the camera and he said, and you start to realize if you're spending most of the day trying to figure out what kind of bird that was, he goes, you're probably not as focused on your job as, as ideally you would be. But um, and I'll start with you, Jim. But for, to me, I mean, his time probably – passed a while ago, but there was a period of time where I don't think anybody had more of an influence on the way people talked and, and joked around about life and, and approached life than, than Letterman at his high point, I feel, really, you know, was a really defining figure for somewhere between five and ten years. I would say maybe even longer because recently, as with any of these guys, when he started out, um, Letterman was not a great interviewer. No. Uh, and now he is a really good interviewer, and you never know where it's going to wind up. It's very spontaneous, it seems. He doesn't go for the usual. I, I really like Jimmy Fallon, but if I see him, I can't bear watching him fawning. I, I feel like if Glenn Beck was on there, oh, I, I love what you said the other day. I have your book. It's brilliantly written. No matter what, he has no uh, critical eye for anything. And, and he'll probably have that eventually because he's a very funny, very talented guy. But I guess it's a new landscape. Um, I, I, love the, I, I love Dave, and I, I love the idea that uh, he was anointed by Johnny Carson and that during Johnny Carson's last week on the planet, he was still writing jokes for, for David Letterman. Uh, and that's how anointed he was. He, he certainly changed the landscape, and the landscape has now changed again underneath his feet. Um, before I go to Rand, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking because you are of a different generation, Teresa, mm -hmm. that you may have never there never been, may never have been a time when Letterman to you was really cool. No, I actually, when I was probably oh, like a tween to early mm -hmm. teens, I really, I. I was probably more of a Conan fan. Like, I, I watched Letterman before Conan came on because I never watched Jay Leno because he was terrible. And, um, but I did, my friend Julie and I, she lives in Texas, so she doesn't hear this. Uh, maybe I'll tell her to listen. But we used to call each other up and talk about the top 10 list or, you know, whatever. We loved that show. And I think that says something, actually, because the current crop of hosts, they're all a little bit older than me, but, you know, um, they're all very influenced by Letterman and more than it, you know, when, when Conan left it late, the, what it, the late show, right? Mm -hmm. That's I what he left. Most yeah. When he left the one to go to the tonight show, he thanked David Letterman. Mm -hmm. He was like, you are a huge influence on me. Jimmy Kimmel absolutely loses his mind over David Letterman. And I would assume Fallon is sort of on the same boat. So mm -hmm. I think he's had more of a, he's had a huge influence on the people who are taking over now. All right, Rand, your turn. I have one thought, and I'll, I'll link it actually to John Rowland. Colin, you wrote a piece years ago that sought to e explore why Rowland was so popular. And at the end of the piece, you actually have a phone conversation with him. And you ask him, in a why are you so popular? And Rowland's, and you ended the piece with this, Rowland says, in a nutshell, people feel comfortable with me. And I think that is absolutely true of Rowland's persona. Now, David Letterman, I think part of his contribution 
was that he did something like the opposite. He, he intruded um, a, a, a feeling and a dimension of discomfort um, w- with himself uh, in, his, in his performance. Uh, he didn't try to smooth things over. There was often awkwardness. There was anxiety. Uh, and, and he allowed free play to awkwardness and anxiety, expressing it, enacting it, and, and sharing it in ways that were you know, perhaps not entirely new. You can trace them back. You can go back to Lenny Bruce, Sid Caesar. There are, there are interesting precursors to the Letterman combination of sort of confessional anxiety, awkwardness, and semi-da-da hijinks. Um, but he concocted that all in a way that was novel, that was new, and, and, and was quite enticing. He seemed to have brought absurdity into a very popular place. And now absurdity is sort of the rule of comedy. But he was the guy that introduced absurdity on a, on a sort of mass level. Every night, something absurd is going to, to happen. Oh, oh, some, some would say, maybe even David Letterman would say, you know, he, there were precursors, whether you say Steve Allen or Fred Allen for that matter. There were people in really the earliest days of television who were more comfortable experimenting with absurdity than television eventually became. I, I think what he put on top of that I mean, I would sort of combine both of your observations and say what, the thing that he did was the, was the most revolutionary, although it was only really marginally transgression, transgressive. Within the bubble of television, he, he sort of said, what if all this really is garbage? Like, what if this is really horrible? And what if the network is actually run by imbeciles and late night, te- night television is stupid and I'm trapped in this job talking to guests – 85% of whom I don't care about. I haven't seen their movies, and I can barely bring myself to have a civilized <laughs> yeah. conversation with them, you know, which was a pretty revolutionary well, thing Johnny to do. Johnny Carson had a certain look yeah. that would imply that, but that's as far as he would go with it. Johnny was always still in- insisting, this is the coolest place you could possibly be at 1130 at night, whereas Letterman was kind of insisting, this might be the worst place you could right. be at 1130 <laughs> yeah, at night. Right. What are you doing here? I know why I'm here. I'm getting paid a lot of money. What are you doing here? <laughs> anyway, we have to take a break. We'll come back after this. going to miss that show that had the stupid human tricks. Also, I'll miss Letterman. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with help from our interns, Jane Ashley and Skylar Magnoli. Patrick Scahill appeared in the introduction, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Pastor Will. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making Crab Nebula chowder, visit WNPR.org. On Monday, the scramble breaks down the news of the weekend. And now, back to the nose. Every week on the scramble, we have what we call a super guest. Uh, somebody, we let that person pick the topics. This week, the super guest is Frank Rich. All right. And he actually uh, legally, <laughs> wow, he's copyrighted great. his name that way, where you have to go, Frank Rich, when you say it, and you have to uh, flash a gang sign, which I'm doing right now. Uh, all right. So uh, we have to go quickly through our endorsements, A, because Ryan has to leave, and B, because we're almost out of time. This is from the Guilty Pleasure Department. Uh, a couple of years ago, I became obsessed with the case of a man named Karl Christian Gerhardsreiter, 
Do you guys know who that is? Who's not obsessed with it? Exactly. Well, he's a guy who went around parading as someone named Clark Rockefeller. Oh. And oh, he yeah, paraded right. to be a minor, he, he, he claimed to be a minor member of the Rockefeller family. He was a con, con man who went around ripping people off for about 25 years uh, and eventually was, uh, was charged with murder. He also abducted uh, his own seven-year-old daughter after a custody dispute and spent a week with her, and that led to his undoing. I have three books on this subject. One is called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by Mark Seal. It's a sort of basic kind of cheesy drama, nonfiction book about this guy. Second is a book just came out called Blood Will Out by an interesting writer named Walter Kern, who's a novelist and fiction writer and who was friends with Clark Rockefeller for 15 years and was duped by him consistently in this time. The third book is a novel by a woman who, an interesting writer who lives in West Hartford named Amity Gage, G-A-I-G-E. It's called Schroeder. It came out a year ago, and it, it, it's clearly based on the Clark, Rock, Clark Rockefeller case, but it, it focuses exclusively on that part of his story where he takes his little girl and spends a, a week with her. And Amity Gage offers a really very positive take on this guy and on his need to experience uh, paternal love. So it's a three-pack of books about Three-pack of books. All right. So uh, we, we were short. Make your okay, endorsements. Uh, I'm endorsing uh, Kevin Ali because I think he's done mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. And I will bring clarity to our Shidola Monday night. If Kevin Ali and his team manage a win on Saturday, we will not play at Monday night at the main pub. But if they do win, if they lose, we will play. I'm so confused. I've, 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 I'm not bringing clarity. If UConn's not playing on Monday night, then lastly, you guys will be. Yeah, uh, uh, the Pusat Dart Band is on a huge cross country tour tonight. We'll be at uh, in Natick at Tcan, which is a great place, and tomorrow night we'll be at the Iron Horse in Northampton. All right, uh, what do you got? I got Jason Isbell. His album Southeastern is amazing, and I finally went and downloaded it, even though I've been hearing about it for a long time, and I've been listening to it all morning, and will continue to listen to it all weekend. All right, formerly a Drive-by trucker? Yes. All right. So um, very quickly, I'm not going to endorse anything. I'm just going to tell you that, uh, remind you that on Wednesday night uh, of next week, April 9th, we will be uh, back at Watkinson School where we were with Jim Chapdelaine not too long ago. This is for a conversation about sports, about how sports lost their innocence, how sports maybe could get their innocence back. Jeff Jacobs from the Hartford Current, or Reggie Hatchett, the current coach of the Weaver basketball team. We'll have a representative from the Corey Stringer Institute, which specializes in preventing sports industries injuries. And we will also have uh, a youth coach, somebody who's had good and bad experiences in the world of youth coaching. So please do join us, 7 p.m., Watkinson School. Call them now. Call the school now or get on the website or something and reserve your ticket for April 9th. I'm Kyone Wolf, and dark matter was a mystery until Kirk Cameron calculated in a dream he once had that 99% of all dark matter was actually made up of the ground-up bones of teachers who forced stories of evolution in school. Actually, that one is true. 